Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. I've been talking about LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, history.com. You've heard about it several times in the introduction of this podcast. So get on out to LearnTrueHistory.com to get history the way it was intended to be told with no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. But not only that, I've got my new How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, my forthcoming book. So I want you to go to LearnTrueHistory.com to sign up for that great program. But also, if you go to BlameHamilton.com, you can get in on some giveaways for my forthcoming book. So two websites for you, LearnTrueHistory.com and BlameHamilton.com. Get in on both of those things. LearnTrueHistory.com is the place to go to learn history the way it was intended to be told. BlameHamilton.com is where you learn about how Alexander Hamilton was the greatest villain in American history. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 98. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to remind you that if you do like this podcast, please share it around on social media. You can do so by uh, liking me on Facebook, at Brian McClanahan. You can follow me on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. And you can subscribe to my YouTube page. Just go on out and search for Brian McClanahan there. Also, if you uh, would like to, you can go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com, give me an email address, and I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and also a free audiobook of the same, Forgotten Founders, read by yours truly. That will get you on my email list. You'll get a couple of emails a week from me. Nothing uh, excessive, but uh, I'll keep in touch with you that way. Uh, and I just want to remind you that if you do like this podcast and you want to offer some financial support, want to throw a few pennies my way, uh, you can do so at brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. Uh, anything is appreciated. It'll help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. Also, don't forget that my Blame Hamilton promotion will expire on September 18th. So if you have not gotten in on that yet, you need to do so. Of course, there's the uh, commercial at the beginning of this podcast, but just to remind you what it is, if you pre-order one book, it can be an ebook, a hardback book. Uh, you will get a free ebook, The Jeffersonian Solution. And if you pre order two or more books, you can mix and match. You can have a hardback book and an ebook. Some people have asked me that, and that's perfectly fine. Two or more, you get uh, a six lecture course on Alexander Hamilton and also the, the ebook as well, The Jeffersonian Solution. And everyone that pre orders a book, one or more, will be registered to win. The grand prize, which is a master-level membership to Liberty Classroom. So go on out there and do that. Go to BlameHamilton.com, and all the details are there. Just click on a little button where it says Blame Hamilton at the, on that, on that web page, uh, and you'll, it'll take you to the contest rules and all the information dealing with that. So remember, all of that expires September 18th, so get it on it now. Uh, that's only a little over a month away. The book comes out that day, and I will probably start doing some media uh, within the next few weeks on the book. So everything is going to get ramped up pretty fast, and you're going to want to get in on that and get those giveaways while they are still available, because when they're gone, they're gone. Okay, today I want to talk about some uh, current events, and I don't um, do this as much. Uh, a lot of times I'm focused exclusively on history, but uh, I want to talk about this situation with the Trump administration and all the chaos that's going on around that. And I'm actually going to bring this into history a little bit, uh, with one of my favorite presidents and John Tyler. 
Uh, but as we've seen in the last uh, couple of weeks, there has been tremendous turnover in the Trump administration. We've had uh, Rince Priebus uh, gone. We've had uh, Scaramucci axed after 11 days. We've had communications directors and uh, you know spokesmen, all kinds of people in and out. Uh, so it just seems like the whole administration is in chaos. And this is working very well for both the neoconservatives who are opposed to Donald Trump and also the left, which is opposed to Donald Trump. And it seems with the failure of the Obamacare repeal and some of the other legislative uh, agenda, which, uh, as I've talked about in my book, Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, a president should not have a legislative agenda. But uh, as we have seen, some of these things have fallen apart, and that's not Trump's fault. Uh, People are putting it at Trump's feet. Well, he can't uh, get Congress to do anything he wants. Well, I mean, Congress is its own animal, and Congress can do whatever they want. The president can recommend that things be done. Uh, in an annual address or otherwise, can make recommendations from time to time. This is what Article 2 says. But the Congress can do what it wants. And so Trump has very little control over that. So he can recommend that Obamacare be repealed. But if the Republicans in Congress don't want it to happen, well, it's not going to happen. So this all seems like a failure for Donald Trump. But in reality, it isn't. And I think that, uh, and I'm going to talk about John Tyler and what happened in the Tyler administration and compare it to Donald Trump, because I think there are some similarities between 1841 and 2017. So first and foremost, when Trump came into office uh, just this uh, early this year, January of 2017, uh, people warned him, don't bring in the neoconservatives. The people that had supported him, the people that had been his greatest allies in his effort to gain the White House and win the election, warned him against these neoconservatives because they are snakes. And if you go back, and I'll also bring in another historical analogy here, the same thing happened to Ronald Reagan back in 1981. So Reagan, for those of you who don't know, maybe you're younger or maybe you're not uh, familiar with American history or modern American history, but Ronald Reagan... Uh, 1976, ran in the Republican primaries against Gerald Ford, and he lost. He barely lost. And and he made this speech at the Republican convention that I think in some ways made people realize that Gerald Ford wasn't the right guy for the job. And, of course, Gerald Ford is a neoconservative's neoconservative. I mean, this guy is establishment as you get. Ronald Reagan was kind of the outsider. Uh, He was the governor of California at one point, but he spoke in a way that uh, made people think he wasn't going to be this Rockefeller-type Republican, this establishment Republican. Of course, Rockefeller Republicans, named after the Rockefeller family from New York, very moderate, uh, essentially you know, neoconservative Democrats. I mean, if you want to look at you know, one of these modern party analogies, which I think are kind of silly, but that's what people think of Rockefeller Republicans. And so Reagan was something different. Now, 1980 rolls around. Of course, Gerald Ford loses the 1976 uh, election to Jimmy Carter. 1980 rolls around, and the Republicans, realizing their mistake, nominate Ronald Reagan. And Reagan wins the election. And I, um, <laughs> when I was at uh, a conference uh, a year ago in, um, in uh, Charleston, uh, ben Jones, who was better known as Cooter from uh, the Dukes of Hazard, was there at this conference. And I, had a, I had lunch with him. And uh, he, of course, served in Congress from, from Georgia. 
And he told a story about uh, when Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter actually made a speech together uh, in the opening of a public building. And I can't remember what it was. But anyways, uh, Reagan goes up and he makes a speech and it seemed like the clouds opened up and, the, and it was just a perfect speech. And Jimmy Carter got up behind him and said, that's why he won. Uh, because he was able to make these speeches that it seemed were just perfect for the time. And Reagan rhetorically was not a neoconservative. He did he did speak about uh, you know peace through strength and building up the military, but Reagan was more interested in at least on the surface more interested in say a non-interventionist foreign policy than uh, the Wilsonian adventurism that uh, had defined the neoconservatives. Um, he spoke of negotiation and peace. He was going to win the Cold War, which sounded great. Um, and a lot of people were on board with, with Ronald Reagan. Unfortunately, Ronald Reagan also brought in a whole bunch of neoconservatives to the uh, Reagan administration, and he entrenched them in Washington, D.C. And these people have since put down firm roots in Washington, D.C. They've gotten involved in all of the think tanks like Heritage Foundation. They've gotten involved in any, any type of, uh, quote-unquote, Republican mainstream Republican organization, they dominated. And so this became very clear by 1992. And I've, I've talked about uh, on this podcast early on, uh, you know, Pat Buchanan. But 1992, Buchanan runs against uh, George H.W. Bush in the primaries and loses. And he also does the same thing in 1996. And then, of course, Buchanan ran for the Reform Party nomination in 2000. But Buchanan was this outsider, this paleoconservative, trying to disrupt this neoconservative, now dominated Republican Party, because that's what Reagan brought in. As and, and the neoconservatives are are intelligent in that they are first of all they are attracted to power, but they know how to get and hold power when they get it. They are cunning, they are vindictive, and they know how to hold on to these things. And so. They're hard to get rid of. I mean, they're like cockroaches. They're a cancer. Uh, and what happened with Trump, and people warned him about this, Trump was running a campaign very similar to a Pat Buchanan campaign, and he actually won. I mean, uh, Pat Buchanan ran Trump's campaign in 1992 and 1996, even 2000. In fact, if you go back and look at the 2000 Reform Party, um, Trump ran against Buchanan. In 2000 for the Reform Party nomination. So there's a lot of similarities, at least in their views on some things, uh, rhetorically, between Pat Buchanan and Donald Trump and, and the type of campaign that Donald Trump ran. Now, just like Ronald Reagan, though, when Donald Trump assumes office, he brings in all the neoconservatives because he's told, well, we got to work with these guys. I and mean, we got to work with Rens Priebus. we got to work with the Republican Party because we don't work with the Republican Party. They're going to they're not going to get we're not going to get anything done. We got to work with these guys. So bring them in. So he starts bringing in all these neoconservatives, all these Republican establishment types. And people warned him against it. Don't do it. What are you thinking? Why are you bringing these people in? Because these people are not your friends. They didn't even want you. They would rather stab you in the back than have you be president because you invalidated everything that they stood for for the last 30 years. You've crushed them. You crushed Jeb Bush. You crushed the Bushes. You crushed all the neoconservative candidates that were standing on the stage. You crushed them all. You made it appear that all these people 
were idiots. And, of course, they are. He even made someone like Ted Cruz, who ran as this outsider, seem like an insider. So Donald Trump was doing exactly what Pat Buchanan tried to do in the 90s and was unsuccessful in doing. He won, though. But he does exactly what Reagan did in bringing these people in. So this has created all kinds of problems. All the leaks, all the backstabbing, all the obstruction, all of that stuff is created by the fact that the Republican Party doesn't want Donald Trump as president. They want their guy. And, and uh, there were a couple of articles out this past week talking about mo how most Republicans would rather have Mike Pence as president. Well, no, duh. Of course they would. He's a neoconservative establishment guy. Donald Trump is not that guy. And so we can talk about you know, the mistakes that Trump has made. You know, publicly bashing Jeff Sessions was not a good idea. This guy has been one of your best supporters. Uh, and Trump has you know, been a little bit of a wild card there. And so there's all of that. And I know a lot of people don't like Trump. Personally, they don't like Trump. I mean, Trump has got a personality that's hard to, to wrap your, your hands around. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting, he's, a, he's a, a ty an archetype of American, right? A, a New Yorker, and, but he's, he's a genuine American in that way. So you've got uh, all of his neoconservatives trying to disrupt the administration. And finally, Trump is figuring this out. It's taken him since January. Here we are, July, seven or I'm sorry, August now, seven, eight months to figure this out. These neoconservatives are not his friends, and they are going to try to undermine his administration. It's clear when the Senate voted down the repeal of Obamacare that these people aren't very much concerned about the success of the Trump agenda to, quote-unquote, make America great. What they're more concerned about is making the Republican Party great in their mind. They, and so Trump is really a man without a party at this point. And there was an article, can Trump, can a president govern without a party? Can Trump govern without a party? And I say, of course he can. Because you can go back to 1841 and look at what happened to John Tyler. There's a lot of similarities here. Now, I will say, John Tyler is my favorite president in American history. I've, done a, I've, done, I've talked a lot about him on this podcast. I wrote a chapter on him in my uh, nine presidents who screwed up America. He is, uh, he is to me, the greatest president in American history. If we use the measure of defending your oath, he's the best. So, when Tyler became president in 1841, after William Henry Harrison died after a month in office, Harrison goes out and uh, is inaugurated in March of 1841, dies in April, a month later. And um, now Tyler is at home at his plantation playing marbles. He's summoned to Washington, D.C., and they're told, you're president now. Now, no one, this is the first time this had ever happened, so no one knew exactly what to expect. Should they have another election? Was uh, John Tyler simply just kind of a, uh, you know interim president? Were they going to do something else? Well, Tyler said, no, I'm president. But, of course, he has all of Henry Harrison, William Henry Harrison's cabinet, and he's got Henry Clay dominating the Whig Party. Now, I talked about the Whig Party in just a few episodes ago and uh, how John Tyler was a different type of Whig. He was a real American Whig, whereas these other Whigs were really just national Republicans and interested in uh, extensive uh, government power. Tyler was not. He was a Whig in a different way. And so the, the cabinet tries to tell him at one point, hey, uh, Tyler, we're just gonna we're just gonna do things, and you just rubber stamp it. And Tyler says, "No, no, I'm I'm the president. This is what I'm going to do, and you're gonna like it, or you can get lost." Well, 
after Tylo, Tyler goes out and uh, vetoes a rechartering of a Bank of the United States twice, the Whigs do something unprecedented. This is, takes place on September 13, 1841. Over 50 Whigs get on the Capitol steps in Washington, D.C., and they expel John Tyler from the Whig Party. He is no longer one of us. Two days before that, September 11, 1841, the Whigs, actually uh, Henry Clay, calls a dinner meeting, and he pulls in the cabinet, and he orchestrates, actually this happened on, I think around September 9th, he orchestrates uh, a, a coup, essentially, what he's trying to do. He says, okay, look, what's going to happen is all you guys are going to resign, and that's going to force John Tyler to resign because he can't govern without a cabinet. And if you don't have a cabinet, well, the, the executive branches is going to fall apart. So Daniel Webster actually excused himself from the meeting, knowing what was going on. And Webster was savvy. Webster uh, realized that the, the, the soul of the Whig Party was either Clay's or Webster's. And Webster was just as ambitious as Henry Clay. And so he left because he wasn't going to be part of this. Webster still had work to do, he thought. And, of course, one of the best treaties in American history was uh, negotiated by Daniel Webster. In 1842, the Webster-Ashburton Treaty, which uh, did establish a boundary between Canada and the United States, a very good treaty. But uh, so Clay says, okay, look, you all are going to go and resign. This is kind of like if you've ever seen the movie Rudy. It's how I often describe it in class. All these uh, cabinet members go in and they lay their shirt down on Tyler's desk and say, this one's for Clay. And they're out the door. I resign. And Tyler says, good, see ya. Don't let the door hit you where the sun don't shine, right? So all these guys leave. And then Daniel Webster's last, and he comes and he says, look, I'm not going to resign. If you'll have me, I'll stay on. Tyler says, good. Shakes his hand and says, you're still Secretary of State. And at another point, Clay comes up to the White House and tries to bully John Tyler into accepting his legislative agenda. And Tyler tells him to get lost. He says, look, Clay, you and I were born in the exact same state. We breathe the same natal air, but you have a job to do on in the Capitol, and I have a job to do here. You go back there and do your job. I'll do my job here, and we don't have to see each other anymore. Because Tyler was his own man, and this was actually liberating for John Tyler to get rid of all this cancer in the executive mansion, to get them all out. And he started appointing his guys, including people like Abel Upshur and eventually John C. Calhoun. He started getting the guys in office that he wanted. The real Whigs. He got rid of the fake Whigs. Now, he did have some disruption in the, in the Treasury Department. Um, but he appointed his guys, many of them Southerners, to these cabinet posts. And then the Tyler administration became a well-oiled machine in what he wanted it to do. Now, he was not nominated by the Whigs or the Democrats in 1844. He was a one-term president. But... He had a very productive and enjoyable time as president after that, even though the Whigs kept trying to impeach him. John Minor Botts kept bringing up impeachment proceedings. we got to get rid of John Tyler because he lied. He told me uh, we were sitting on a bed together at one point. And, uh, we were bunking together in our, our room, and he told me that uh, he was going to support this, and they didn't. So this guy's acting, he's acting in a manner unbefitting the president because he has the audacity to veto our legislation. This is what they wanted to impeach John Tyler for, the Whigs, for vetoing legislation. When Tyler made it very clear in his veto messages, if you read these things, I mean, they are pure originalist constitutional bliss. I mean, they, they are so good. 
And so Tyler says, look, my job is to defend the Constitution. This law is unconstitutional, and so I'm going to veto it. And the Whigs were incensed. They couldn't stand it. But Tyler got his guys in office, and he didn't have to deal with the cancer anymore of the Whig party. That is instructive for Donald Trump. Highly instructive for Donald Trump. Because if Donald Trump wants to have a successful administration, what he needs to do is cut the cancer out. And that means going from the top down, getting rid of every neoconservative he can find in his administration, and purging them. He would have a much more effective administration. Now, is he going to have a quote-unquote legislative agenda? Well, I would say maybe or maybe not. The president shouldn't have a legislative agenda anyways. He can make recommendations. But this also falls on the American public in districts across the country to vote in people who are going to agree with the legislative agenda that Trump wants. If that's what you want, if you want the Trump legislative agenda, then you have to put people in office. If you want, for example, to repeal Obamacare, well, you got to get rid of people like John McCain and Susan Collins and uh, Murkowski and some of these others that are blocking this stuff, they're Republicans. They should be report they should be supporting the quote unquote conservative agenda, but they don't do it. Why? Because they're establishment types and they have no intention of doing it. The House has been better than the Senate. The Senate has just been downright awful. The House has been better than the Senate, but you have people like Rand Paul saying we need a clean repeal bill. Well, uh, let's vote on that. I mean, you did it when Obama was president, but of course that's because these posers in the Senate and the Congress and the House, uh, they, uh, they're going to speak out of both sides of their mouth. When it comes to campaign time, they want to show, I voted against Obamacare. Of course, no chance of it ever passing because the president was going to veto it, which he shouldn't because that legislation was perfectly constitutional. Uh, the president should have let that go through, but this is where the, the vetoes become a partisan hammer rather than what it was intended to do, which was defend the Constitution. And so uh, they, they have no cover anymore. So the, the public, and I think this is, this is good, this kind of conversation that we're having now is very good. Now, a lot of people thought when Trump came into office, uh, the ideas of, say, true federalism, state power, Tenth Amendment, all these things were going to go away because people would be secure and they would understand that, well, I mean, we're safe now for four years because Trump's there and things are going to get better and uh, states will be recognized and, and uh, we're going to make these things work from here on out. What they found is that this is not the case and that it's as important as ever to talk about issues of like federalism and state power. Because what I hope people realize by uh, the Congress being as obstructionist as it is, is not doing what people want them to do, is that Congress is never really going to do what you want it to do. And so, therefore, you have to look for other solutions. And this is the think locally, act locally mantra. This is federalism at work. If you want to uh, do some of these things, we'll start looking at the state level. I am you know, very interested to see what happens with California. They're... they're uh, secession initiative. What are they going to do there? Uh, you still have the Tenth Amendment Center being very active in pushing uh, states' rights, quote-unquote states' rights, legislative issues. Because these things are still important even in the age of Trump. 
Trump needs to clean the people out. He needs to follow John Tyler's lead and say, I'm getting rid of these people, even if it makes him a one-term president, even if it means the Republican Party won't nominate him, and of course the Democrats won't, even if it means that, Trump needs to do it. Now, of course, the great fear for that, and people will say, well, if Trump does that, Republicans, he might run as a third party, and then, and then we're going to get Hillary Clinton or somebody worse, Camilla Harris. Well, oh, I mean, is is Hillary Clinton? I mean, Hillary Clinton is basically Republican <laughs> in so many ways. Uh, I mean, is is uh, is uh, Mike Pence much better? I mean, I, we've had Republicans in control of Congress, and they do nothing. The government gets bigger. The government spends more money. We're going to raise the debt ceiling again. It does everything that that conservatives say we don't want it to do, but it does it anyways. So is, a, is Mike Pence any better? We've got a Republican president who's willing to sign tax cuts. He's willing to sign the repeal of Obamacare. He's willing to do all that, and the Congress won't do it. So where is the real problem here? Certainly not with the president, but it is with the Republican Party. It is with the neoconservatives. That is the problem. So if America, Americans finally woke up and said, you know what? They are the problem. Let's either have another party, let's have a third party that's that's a real conservative or you know, libertarian party. And I would encourage the left to do the exact same thing. Look, the Democrat Party is not a hard leftist friend at all. The railroading of Bernie Sanders made that clear. Form your own party. Get your own party, socialist party, and nominate Bernie Sanders. Let's tear down the whole thing. Let's show the two-party system for the sham that it is. The Republican Party for being a sham. The Democrat Party for being a sham. And let's take it to task. And we can have, you know, if Donald Trump's your guy for some conservative party, well, Trump, um, you know, maybe you get someone like Rand Paul as a good candidate for another party. Let's have these, let's have this real open discussion about what we, the direction of the United States. And this is not unheard of to have multiple candidates. We've had it before, before the party convention system that Martin Van Buren created, we had several elections where you had multiple candidates. We had elections decided in the House of Representatives. Uh, So I think that uh, this discussion that we're having, Trump needs to get rid of the cancer. He needs to pull the weeds. He He needs to cut down the trees that have now grown up in the neoconservative forest uh, and rid D.C. of these things. You talk about draining the swamp. Well, that would be it. you got to get rid of the neoconservatives. It's not just the Democrat bureaucrats. It's also the neoconservative bureaucrats who have to go because they're going to obstruct. And I can almost guarantee you that the leaks that are coming out of the Trump administration are coming out from neoconservatives in one place or another because they didn't want Donald Trump. They're only there because of the power and what it can do for them. And they want their guy, Mike Pence. This was actually stated in an article uh, that there are many conservatives now that are saying, uh, you know, I'm sorry, Republicans, uh, neoconservatives saying, yes, we, we secretly want Mike Pence to be president and we're going to undermine essentially Donald Trump. We want him out because uh, he says all kinds of crazy things. <laughs> this, is, this is where we've gotten. And I think it's unfair. But we can learn from John Tyler. Once he cleaned out the cancer, he had a pretty productive administration. John Tyler did what he wanted. He vetoed the legislation he wanted. He got Texas, which was a big deal, uh, and uh, you know, a very peaceful administration. 
So I, I think that uh, Trump needs to learn that if he just gets his, his people in there, the people that would support Trump or support the Trump agenda, even if they're not high on Donald Trump's character or Donald Trump as a person, but yet they can support the agenda, I think you would have a much more productive administration. Get rid of the cancer, which is the neoconservatives. My greatest hope at the end of the day would be that the neoconservatives are run out of Washington, D.C. It's not going to happen. They're too entrenched. They're too entrenched all over the place. And people think that somehow neoconservatism is conservatism. It's not. It's not American conservatism at all. But that's what we've come to think and expect here in uh, 2017. And that's because of the Reagan Revolution, which brought all the neoconservatives to power. So when we look at uh, the Trump administration, I think it's important to keep in mind some historical antecedents, you know, some things that came before, uh, some things that uh, mean something. And Trump could learn some, a few lessons from people like John Tyler. Nobody wants to be associated with John Tyler or James Buchanan or Franklin Pierce. Uh, but John Tyler is the greatest president in American history, and Trump could learn something from his administration and the purge that took place. He got rid of the cancer. He told Henry Clay to stick it, and he did what he wanted, which was veto bad legislation. Trump could be that kind of independent executive. Uh, you know, John Tyler did believe in a strong executive, uh, but a strong executive that was restrained by the, by the Constitution itself and the powers that were delegated to the executive branch by the Constitution. And Trump should be looking at the exact same thing. So... That would be my hope that this would come out of it. And in fact, I wrote an article uh, for townhall.com on this uh, yesterday on the 31st. And uh, it'll probably be included in my email that goes out with this podcast in it. But um, these are things that need to happen. And John Tyler, again, can serve not only as a, as a model for what the president should do when it comes to vetoing legislation, for the type of veto messages we should have, for the way the president should conduct himself, but also for the way the president cleaned house when it became apparent that all the people in that cabinet were against him. I'll take your resignation. See you later. I want to point my guys, my guys to these positions, not your guys, not the Republican Party guys who are going to try to backstab me every chance they get. Those guys need to go. Rents Priebus needed to go. Uh, and so did so does any other neoconservative that's left in that uh, White House and uh, in that administration. The only way you can get rid of them in Congress is to vote them out. And I think that uh, that needs to happen. Uh, and some of these people need to be primaried. Uh, and, of course, you know, if we could have that. But then the other alternative to that is also standing up in your states, thinking locally, acting locally putting your states first and foremost, trying to do as much as you can in your community for the cause of liberty or whatever your particular uh, cause is. If you're a leftist, you know, get your socialist utopia. Hey, break away from the United States like California. That sounds great. That way the rest of the red staters wouldn't have to deal with you anymore. But uh, these are things that should be happening, and Trump should take should rip a page out of the Tyler playbook and do exactly that. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan. <laughs>